Letter 2 You want my first 16 years in three easy words. Totally and utterly. You want my first 16 years in three easy words. Totally and utterly fucked. I was scum. I ran about with scum. I don't do proper sums, but here's a scum sum I know of. What's one scum plus two scums? Easy. We're scums. While we're speaking of scums, did I tell you what happened when I went down the gym? Because there's this drug dealer doing weights there. I ain't seen her in years. She's built like she could pull a bus along. When she strains her face, she looks like a bowl of porridge. So we nod and I do my sit-ups. I can do hundreds. I never stop. Only, this bowl of porridge keeps looking over. I don't know how you keep the flab at bay. I do sit-ups. It firms your abs. People used to say I crawled out of a sewer. I weren't bothered. Nowadays, how I got to look so gorgeous ain't too short of a miracle. You will grant, I didn't do nothing. My maker is the one what made me. Amen. The least I can do is keep myself in trim. It's just that being down the gym is a fat lot of good when there's other sinners about who get in your face. By the way, abs is short for abominals. Did you know that? You probably did. Your sort knows everything. The thing is, is, the bowl of porridge pumping weights in the gym slides over and starts rubbing my abominals. She puts her blubby hands on my belly. Before she can do nothing else, I tells her to fuck off. Nobody rubs my abs without my say-so. Only, she gets the hump then. You can tell, cause she slopes back to her spot, too casual to be anything but shirty from now on in. Frank Furness don't know it yet, how I said the fuck word in public again. It was the first time in ages I broke my promise to him. He will have guessed by now. When I see him next, I'll just say it to him. He won't give a fuck. Ruddy Miss Shitface weren't taking my snub too kindly, though. Next day, there's a squirmish between me and her. I won't trouble you with details. It was mostly shoving and pulling hair. No weapons. I never even punched her. That would have fucking hurt. In the end, what we done to each other weren't nothing a handful of paracetamol won't fix. Not for me, though. I don't bother with medication. There ain't no need for that no more.
you'll be asking how I got so bolshy. Shall we start with the day I was born? Because that's when it all started. And if you're thinking of sending cash or gifts, my birthday is the day before Valentine's. Which fucking says it all. Because I ain't never been on that missing boat. That missing boat sailed right by, like everything else in my life. Only, don't go thinking I give a fuck. Shall I tell you about my first ever beau? I calls him Pyro Beau. We can call him Dickhead if you like. I met him in the days I was looking for Albert Square. I will admit this. In them days, I was fucking green at running off. The blokes in black would find me and taser me back to my senses. I met him in the days I was looking for Albert Square. I will admit this. In them days, I was fucking green at running off. It was only when I run off to London in a delivery van the social never found me again. This was the start of my next life. I was 16, which ain't no legal age, but I could take care of myself, like dogs can if they need to. I went sleeping round the back of buildings. I didn't have no clue where Albert Square was. One morning, a smelly bloke with no teeth finds me shivering in front of Westminster Tube. He buys me cappuccinos. I hate the oily taste, but it was hot, so I drunk it. He says his name is Jake or some such. He says I could go with him to his squat if I like. I tells him I need to find Albert Square so I can live there for the rest of my days. He says that ain't no problem. He'll take me there. Before I come to London, I went round loads of squats. It's damp and cold, but you can get the job done in them, out of sight. Trouble is, is, this bloke's London squat weren't just back to basics. It was a fucking toilet. All it had was a mattress we could sit on and do chemicals together. The mattress had creepies all over it, not counting the dickhead. I told him straight away he weren't going to rape me. If he tried, he'd have to murder me first. Otherwise, I says to him, I'll go to the blokes in black and grass about his pedo ways. That made him chuckle. Which only lulls me to thinking he weren't too interested in having relations. I know what you're saying. You're saying, there she goes again, getting herself into one more fucking mess. Will she never learn? Don't she know how all blokes ever think about is having a quickie? Don't make me puke. Before you try and make me puke, there's two things about me I will tell you for free. The first is, I am craftier than I let on. The second is, even with the fuck-up that's happened in my life, the creator of all things is still on my side. One day, you will understand my meaning. Here's why I ended up calling the dickhead called Jake Pyro Bow instead. Here's why I ended up calling the dickhead called Jake Pyro Bow instead. In his shit squat, me and him did a pipe of dazzle together. Dazzle is what I like to call any drug I like. Only, 
Pyro's uncut variety never stopped how freezing we felt. It was lowly grade stuff. So he lit a fire in a corner. The fire fizzled and smoked. The smoke made our eyes sting. So Pyro only squirts his meths all over it. This makes it explode up the fucking walls. It was nice and toasty then, no mistaken. There weren't time to warm our hands though. Before the whole place went to blazes, the total twat I was with has the presence to scarper and take me with him. It was so hilarious after I stuck by him. We went thieving together. He kept saying how next day or the next day after we'll be off to Albert Square. He says he knows where Albert Square is. He says he will show me some proper East Enders. Did he? Pull the other one. He got creepier. One night, he was touching my abominals. I told him to fuck off. I meant it. I told him twice. When I didn't feel like talking no more, I turned round and put my knees in his bollocks. This left my expo groaning quietly while I pissed off up Whitehall, never to see his toothless grin again. Do you want to know what I think? I shall tell you straight away. Cause it's one of those thoughts I get when I think about love issues. The trouble with love is, it needs a home over its head. Did you know that? If you can't live nowhere, you can't love nowhere. I bet you didn't know that. Now that you've been told what the trouble with love is, you will grant this. Once the social took me under their care and control, any thought of having a place of my own was no more than fancy daydreams. I got placements. I don't suppose you ever got placements. Your sort don't need them. I must have done a good hundred before the bloke I call Piss Flaps got his greasy paws all over me. Piss Flaps was a mechanic. He was always under cars. I called his wife the thing in the bog. Her real name was Silly Jilly. One day I will tell you how Piss Flaps pulls me aside so he can make me say to the social how I will adore nothing more than being permanently adopted by that fucktard and his good lady. Which is how he wormed his way into being my fake dad. But let's leave that story for another time. Shall we? What you need to know now is what a placement is. It ain't no big secret. A placement is a place that is meant to be your place, but it ain't. It's other people's places. It's the places you get made to stay in, even after you run away. So long as the blokes in black ain't tasered you first, your placement is where you go back to until you get plonked in another placement. You will always run if you can. You will never go to school. The blokes in black will always taser you and they will always take you back to the social. And the social will always take you and shove you back into whatever shitty placement they can think of next. In all those years of me being bonkers and uncontrollable, never once did the social let on about the one good enough place they took me from in the first place. My place. All I know is, I was born in Cambridge. 
Then I'd done my millions of placements till Pissflaps and his manky missus got hold of me and made me all official. They turned my name into Jenny whatever. This made no odds. Jenny this, Jenny that. I never did like my name. Not until I found out it was Marley. I still don't know hardly nothing about what it's like being Marley as a baby. There's this one picture in my brain I will tell you about. It's underneath all the other piled-up stuff. I will tell you about it so long as you understand first why I say there is a whole other life I should have lived, only I never got to live it. Not until I run away to London to find Albert Square and found out the truth instead. After I broke off relations with the dickhead, I got up to all sorts of hilarious capers which I feel sure will make you wince no end. But let's savor that for later, shall we? What's important right now is, it took forever for me to find out my real name ain't Jenny but Marley. Once I found out that scientific fact, I weren't looking back. And now, I will finish this side of my story by telling about my buried memory from the beginning of Marley's life. It was before the social took me away. I was only tiny, barely out of swaddles. What I can see is my real mum smiling. I know she's my real mum because I seen her in photos after. It was pitch dark. I remember how cold it was. My mum was bobbing her head from side to side with her breath all round her face and the fire glowing. There's a bonfire behind her. I can see a guy in the blackness. He's burning from the legs up. I can see the guy's melting face and his eyes getting sadder. I was only tiny, barely out of swaddles. What I can see is my real mum, smiling. I know she's my real mum, because I seen her in photos after. There was a letter from Bessie Godwin to her husband I never showed you. It was drafted on the 9th of August, 1998. It was written in a fluid, upright hand, with only two corrections on four pages of writing. Whether or not it was sent, any communication as explosive as the one Bessie contemplated, that dreary August day, will have had consequences for her marriage. The letter began, conversationally enough, with a remark about the weather. Bessie wondered where in the world it might be sunny. She remonstrated with her husband about his decision to remain in Suffolk that weekend. She hoped he was as comfortable as it was possible to be in his lodgings there. I don't suppose this was intended sympathetically. Charlotte comes up often in the letter. 
She's mentioned in different ways, but with a single purpose in mind. Their daughter had become bored and at times willful, Bessie wrote. It was her active mind. They ought to have considered a holiday camp, which might have tired her out, or at least alleviated the passing of the summer holidays. Bessie worried that Charlotte might not have as many friends as she'd had the year before. She mentioned that their daughter had twisted her ankle and grazed her knee, playing hopscotch alone on the pavement outside. Towards the end of the letter, the tone shifts. It started with a phone call. I had hoped to speak with you today, but when I telephoned, Mrs. Davidson told me that you had popped out for lunch. I asked if you were on your own. Her muddled reply was enough for me to surmise that you weren't. I do not simply assume that you and your little Miss Lewinsky are having a tryst. Rather, I am certain of it. She rang me last night to confirm it. Her purpose, I suppose, was to rupture even further what little we have left. She was most charming about this, I thought, verging on apologetic. I declined to indulge her. I explained that the best home possible for my child, which includes having two loving parents by her side, takes priority over any feelings of ill-will I must now harbor as a result of her unwanted communication with me. Before ringing off, I told her politely that if she ever felt the urge to speak with me again, she ought not to trouble herself. This puts us in an invidious position, I know. But I've thought about it. I've been thinking about it for some time. Despite what has happened, I hope you agree that we owe it to Charlotte to repair our marriage as best we can. Bessie finished by asking her husband to make contact again when he was ready to discuss the matter. I have no way of telling what Edwin might have made of it, or whether or not he even received the particular draft of that letter which, along with a number of family documents, were piled up in a box that belonged to Bessie. What I can say is, there seems to have been a healing of sorts. But it was a tragic healing. Towards the end of that year, Mr. and Mrs. Godwin took their short break in Portugal. They stayed at a small hotel in the Madragoa district of Lisbon. A fire swept through the hotel during their second night there. Five guests, including Charlotte's parents, were killed. Families of the victims of the fire were given to understand that the authorities believed it may have been started deliberately. No arrests were made. Nobody was prosecuted. The initial suspicion of foul play faded against competing theories, one of which was that a faulty fuse box in the cellar of the building had ignited. It wasn't lost on me that you were upset by this. Your silence told me what you might have gone through. I doubt Charlotte ever recovered. It would be difficult for a mature person to cope with the sudden and meaningless deaths of both parents. For a child of nine, I can only guess how such an event can have been processed. Even when it was safe for Charlotte to say that she no longer felt haunted by it, the absence of her parents lingered in her poems. 
And I totally agree with you that their deaths very likely triggered her need to write poetry. You were sure that she suffered from depression, and you would turn out to be right. It saddened me, though, that you should be acquainted with mental struggle. This was my own naivety, I know. Louise Gross was unaware Charlotte had ever been diagnosed with mental illness. Charlotte never said, but she was also sure that something was fundamentally wrong. It was to be seen in the desperation of so many of Charlotte's early poems. One called Love Less may be the best example. It was written on the 11th of October 2005, the seventh anniversary of her parents' death. When I feel this way, I'm struggling with a demon. There's a physical distortion. I'm crawling out with it, through its prison, into every thought I have. Out on some end of it, I'm groping for what I might be. The way I feel is sticky. Those clogged up, plasma-like thoughts, like dark juices, stretch out of my face. It must be rotten here. My nervous curse comes to mind, but it's not my own when I feel like this. An ugly mass, hoping for what I could be, rather than stomach the hatred I have for others like me. I have never known what to say about these kinds of feelings. They can sometimes twist everything, and they leave you ruined. I admit, love less comes close to describing something I've been contending with too, off and on, for twenty years. If we ever have to talk about this, let me warn you now, there's nothing straightforward or even natural about what happened to me. I could tell you more about Hugo Timlin's recollections. In the summer of 2007, he and Charlotte were 17 and 18 respectively. He'd been aware of Charlotte's presence at her school. He hadn't forgotten her at all, but he hadn't approached her either. As for Charlotte, despite being in history with him, at no point during or after lessons did she acknowledge that she knew who Hugo was. They renewed their acquaintance in their final year when they found themselves sitting next to each other on a bus. The school had organized a weekend away to Northumberland National Park. Hugo was the last student to board the bus. Charlotte was sitting alone. She was in a window seat towards the front. As he walked down the aisle, Hugo noticed she was reading. He was late because his mother had fussed over what he should wear. Like everyone else in their year, he wouldn't have chosen to sit next to Charlotte. Because she was so taciturn then, she was treated like a pariah. But the bus was full, and it seems Hugo had no alternative. He told me people jeered as he walked back up the aisle and sat down in the only unoccupied seat. Charlotte didn't even look up. She seemed too absorbed in her book to notice the hoops that followed Hugo's return to the front of the bus. 
As he settled himself, he realized he hadn't brought anything to read. Before long, he was pretending to be asleep. He remembers calculating that the journey was meant to last five hours, which meant that one of them was going to have to say something sooner or later. As they were cruising up the motorway, Charlotte snorted and closed her book with a snap. Hugo has no recollection of what he said to break the ice, but whatever it was, it was prompted by the sounds that Charlotte made on finishing her book. He pretended to be stirred by them. He remembers worrying that maybe he should have waited for a less awkward pretense to be shaken out of his slumber. They went on to talk for the rest of the trip. Hugo's memory of the conversation turned out to be patchy. He said it felt free-ranging, flitting between topics, moving on easily. What he does remember is Charlotte warning him that he might be better off not trying to get to know her. He didn't pay any attention. He was more interested in joking about the book she hadn't liked. He doesn't recall the title. But it was a thick one. I suppose Hugo was impressed by the fact that Charlotte could be so critical of it, and yet trawl through it all the way to the end. It hadn't even been assigned reading. We never know who we're going to fall in love with. It's not as if we can choose, is it? What Hugo began to realize about his encounter with Charlotte that day was something he would never have imagined possible. Sitting shoulder to shoulder with her as he watched her lips move, he had a sudden urge to kiss her. 